Well, hi. It's been a while, but I'm back in the studio because, frankly, at this stage, making a podcast is about as social as my life gets. Because, like most of you, I've been thrown back into the closet for the endless lockdowns, you know, given that my many talents have not been deemed essential in the pandemic. I did consider reskilling as a doctor doctor, but then I watched Grey's Anatomy because I'd already watched everything else on Netflix and turns out their hours are even worse than nightclub work, so I decided I would spare the A&E my Whitney Houston impersonation. And I swear to God, but when this is all over, I am never going to go for another bloody walk ever again, just out of spite. Anyway, in a desperate attempt to find human contact with people who aren't my poor husband, the cashier at Tesco, our beautiful doctors with complicated love lives and quirky patients in a Seattle hospital, I've decided to find a quiet corner and have some socially distant conversations with some real, live, actual people who've been reckless enough to agree to chat with me. And first up in my tete-a-tete is a man whose level of activity, even in a pandemic, is exhausting just to read about. I'm with Brezzy, better known to his mammy as Niall Breslin, a man who has more hats than Philip Tracy. He's a podcaster, an author, a mental health advocate, a singer, a community activist, a TV personality. He was a professional athlete. He has two degrees and a master's. He's getting people running marathons and playing the ukulele. And he has even managed to squeeze in a few children's books. Oh, and of course... He's also the handsome guy from the blizzards. At this stage, I suspect he could also fix your car and whip up a souffle while freeing the Suez Canal of stuck cargo ships. Have you always been an annoying overachiever? <laughs> you know, what? I my mum says my CV should read just throw as much crap at a wall and see what sticks. And that <laughs> has been my mentality. It's Only I do believe we do this that. thing, though, where we label people and we go, if you do a certain career, you can't possibly do another one. You couldn't be an athlete and a musician at the same mm. time. I even went through that as. But the thing about it is, Panthe, when when I was in my teenage years, I, I kind of got duped into believing that my happiness or peace lay in achievement. So I was constantly trying mm. to chase things. And none of them actually meant anything. I didn't feel anything because I was doing them for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um, Because you're still achieving, you know, you're doing a lot. So you still have that drive. But the thing about it is what I used to do is I'd have goals and I would set these goals without knowing what my values were. Mm. And over the last number of years, I really like ironed down on what my value system is. What do I stand for? What do I want to do? And it kind of all does overlap. Like one of the things that I I knew I wanted to do, and I had to have this discussion with myself a few years ago, especially after The Voice. Like I didn't enjoy television. It just, Mm. I'll be honest with you, it was was great. It helped me. The the producers were amazing. The show was enjoyable, but I didn't enjoy the formulaic approach to, you know, your producer essentially telling you what to say. And you know those lines you have to do. This is down to the wire. Please don't make me say that stuff. And I, I felt with TV... Well, and it was probably the most formulaic kind of television, yeah, you know, reality show competition. Entertainment television is. Yeah. Uh, I just felt that I knew at that point what I, that I didn't want to progress with this. And also, RT cut the show, so I didn't have any choice. <laughs> but I, I, I kind of felt, right, what do I want to do? And that's the point I had to make the call. I really, really knew that having gone through the journey with my own head, I really felt that I wanted to do something. And I didn't know what that was. I had no plan. I started with a blog to create a safe space for people to talk about their human experiences. Mm. 
and it just exploded and it became a charity and and you know we're now in 125 schools in Ireland we'll be in every school but th- th- my biggest skill was finding the right people to be around your Madonna is that what it is? Yeah, yeah Madonna's real <laughs> skill is knowing who to work with. <laughs> well, Ray Light when she came back with that record, and you remember that was like yeah. this. But it is. It's. It's. I think it's important to understand that there's so much in this world that you you don't know. I identify slightly with you in the sense that you also have two names. Mm-hmm. You're Brezzy and you're Nile Breslin. So the Brezzy thing, right? I mean, when I when I signed up for the Voice. I came in one day and there was my name in the back of the chair and I was like, feck, it's gonna like, I can't change it now to Niall Breslin. I won't fit in the chair anyway. So, and it's, I've been called Brezzy since I was a kid. It's a very unoriginal nickname for a Breslin. I just go with it. I have a few other nicknames. Big Face was the other one I was called. <laughs> so I, I think Brezzy is slightly more, uh, I, I'll take Brezzy all day. I think the Niall Breslin thing, it's funny is because people go, is it because you got really serious and you're doing serious stuff? It's like, no, it's not yeah. that at all. It's because my bloody name. Yeah. Uh, I think the Brezzy thing became a thing because of alliteration with the blizzards. <laughs> yeah, Brezzy well, from the blizzards. Yeah. Like, it worked really well. And and when you're in a band, it, it, you can be whatever you want. I think I've tried to get away from the Brezzy thing because... It, yeah, that's what I was sort of... The, the sense I'm getting, because like on your podcast and that, you're always Nile. Mm. Um, and Brezzy and... You know, from the outside looking in, it seemed to me that Brezzy was like created for the you know for the stage in a way or it was you know. i think i think it was and it wasn't created by me it was mm. just a name given to me yeah. and i just went with it and i do think this thing we do in that's difficult sometimes in ireland is once you have been given a perception mm. that's it you ain't changing yeah. that yeah. and no matter what you do you can't change that and i've accepted that i think with the podcast most of my listeners aren't irish mm. so there's a completely different new audience for me in the uk yeah. and america and I think probably a good time to rebrand. Well, also because, and you've spoken about it yourself, having felt it particularly keenly, but I think everybody who has any sort of public person, you know, image does have to wrestle about with what's public and, and what isn't in, in a way. And then your second career is about being incredibly open and mm. personal and real. Like, in a way, the antithesis of a constructed public persona. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why I just found the Brezzy um, Nile thing interesting. Mm. You know this, Panty, is, is boundaries become so crucially important when you're in the public eye. You have mm. to create boundaries. You have to know what those boundaries are and, why, and how to set them and how to maintain them. Mm. So, for example, I wrote a book about my mental health and it was an incredibly exposing book. Yeah. And it was incredibly difficult for my family to read, even though they knew just to see it. I remember when I handed that book to my mother, I came home, I gave it to her and I drove around Ireland I actually drove around Ireland. I just took off. I gave it to her. I, I left and I went to Galway. I went down because I knew she was going to read it straight away. Yeah. And it terrified me because no mother or father wants to read that. Yeah. And they knew I, I was doing it for the right reasons. But I got this text and I got to Arklow and it was just like, I've never been more proud of you. And I just, I remember just having to pull in and just relieved, you know, that she understood why I had to do it. So the reason I'm saying that is I feel writing something like that that's so exposing is is tough is tough but there is part of my life that isn't anybody's business yeah and i do keep it to myself but when it comes to mental health and what i've gone through and what i carry there's no no shame i carry no shame on that i carry no embarrassment with it i was in a cafe the other day a cafe and a 75 year old man came up and he wasn't coming on to me he said he was lonely Mm. 
When has that happened in society? Think of the 80s and 90s in Ireland. Mm. How amazing this is now that we have people that are actually going, I'm actually lonely. And I said to him, I'm not uncomfortable with your pain. And that's what we've done in this country. We've made people really uncomfortable with other people's pain. Mm. So you forced them to internalize that and repress that pain. Alcoholism, drugs, repressing who they are. That is so damaging to an emotional well-being of an individual. And I think in Ireland, we need to become more comfortable with people's pain. And then we will start progressing when it comes to mental health, because we're still not there yet. So when I was, you know, reading and learning about you, it didn't surprise me at all that you would have, when you were younger, you have you know, been dealing with anxiety issues and so on, but also have, you know, be the captain of the football team. Mm. In a way, I, I was I could understand that. Um but in the way for me, it's harder to understand how you can have, you know, issues and anxiety, and stuff, but then also be the front man of a rock band. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems like a, a bigger disconnect in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, I think here's a probably a good, <laughs> a good point to kind of address the fact that we know we talk about anxiety and we talk about depression. And everybody has anxiety. Yeah. Anxiety disorders are fundamentally different. Yeah. I had a panic disorder. I was fighting for breath day and night yeah. all the time. The only time I actually felt normal was when I was running or when I was playing sport. I did not have social anxiety. I was comfortable on a stage. I was comfortable in intense situations. It was general anxiety. It was when I was lying in bed for no reason where mm-hmm. I felt like I was going to die. Uh, it was constantly worrying about other people. I couldn't deal with the amount of fear I had for other people and people I loved. I care a lot about other people. I always have. I've been brought up that way. My anxiety was devastatingly difficult. It was insomnia. It was panic disorder. But it was general anxiety. You put me on a stage where I had self-belief, where I had four other people around me that believed in me and I believed in them. I could do that all day, yeah. all day, every day. Stage never bothered me. And I'm sure you can understand that too. Yeah. It can be a place where you fall into yourself. Mm-hmm. And on the pitch was the same when I played sport is because because you don't have time to think. Yeah. You know, you're, if you think too much, you'll get absolutely your arse handed to you. Yeah. And so they, they were the situations I was utterly comfortable in. Mm. I wasn't comfortable in simple things. And um, like, I mean, people talk about it. Was it because I went to Israel and it was a post-traumatic stress disorder? I was always a worrier. As my mum said, a nice way to say I used to weld myself to her leg yeah. all the time. The Israel thing is because your dad was in the army and mm. your family were posted there. Yeah. And like the thing is funny with Israel, <laughs> I was telling the story, there was peace in the Middle East for about 15 years. Like it was grand, like there was, you know, it, the Middle East is a complicated, difficult place. And learning about it at 13 years of age was an incredibly mm. eye-opening experience. But the day the Breslins landed in Tel Aviv, literally the day the nine-day war started, mm. and my dad drove us up to the border, and that's where we were staying in a place called Naharia. And not only did I feel the ground vibrating as shells were dropping, my dad was driving up into the middle of that crap every day. And I was like, is he going to come home? And that sense of safety being removed from a child, not even a teenager, but the most basic need of any child or teenager is to feel safe. Yeah, now you brought that up there and I was listening to your podcast with Dr. Tony Bates mm-hmm. and you were you know, talking about your school, you know, your primary school and not feeling safe there. And I think most Irish people of a certain age can really relate, mm. you know, to that, the kind of violence and nonsense that kids were 
um, subjected to. Did going to school in that period where, you know, kids were getting the crap beaten out of them and all of that, did that leave a mark? I think the, the strange thing was we were all getting beaten up. Like, so there was an element of like, this isn't individual to me. There was definitely kids who got more of a beating. Yeah. Um, but I was like, I'm not being picked out here. And I think that was, there was some solace in that because you're not going, I'm a terrible individual. Yeah, you were part of a team. Everybody was yeah, beaten. yeah. And, I, and people kind of, I put this, that, that podcast up. I didn't mean for that to go there. Like I've been in schema therapy for a while now and schema therapy essentially is where we look at life traps and the things that would happen to us as children and how we hold on to them. And I keep being brought back to this, the fact that I never felt safe in school mm. and the beatings like what I struggled with most was watching it. I really struggled watching kids being beaten up, God forbid, you know, and it, that school was tough. And I put up the podcast and there was threads and threads of people going, yeah, same thing happened yeah. to me. Same thing happened to me. Well, same. you are 40. Mm-hmm, 40 and, this year. And I'm 52. So mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, about 10 years ahead of you. And uh, you were Christian Brothers mm-hmm. in a small town. Mm-hmm. Um, I was uh, Mercy Nuns, then Christian Brothers, then Franciscans. I had the full Star Jesus, Wars, Star so- Wars character set. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, um, and the nuns, the Christian brothers were totally violent. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the Franciscans weren't so violent, but there was sexual abuses rife in my secondary school for the Franciscans. The main culprit uh, was sent to prison in later years. Um, I had that in our primary school, too. Yes. You know. I mean, in our primary school, we had it, too. Although I have to say, I have, by luck, by chance, avoided the, the particular mm-hmm. um, troublesome brother um, for the most part part and he was never my actual proper teacher but my my brothers had him the thing though about that about not feeling safe in primary school um i did feel safe because a i wasn't aware of the sexual stuff at that stage and and the violent stuff i i was a you know a a, a mouthy smart book smart kid Mm. and i rarely got into trouble i was lazy but i absorbed things easily so i never you really got in trouble in primary school and um so the violence is always on the boys who weren't good at learning. Mm. And in a way, I feel that that in a way almost protected me. And I felt that time. But in 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 secondary school, um, the sexual abuse stuff was absolutely common knowledge amongst every single boy in the school. We made jokes about it. We made jokes about the particular priest um, when when he would call someone into his office. Um, everybody else would make these masturbating noises, you know, behind at their desks. Um, and so it, now I, 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 it never happened to me, but I knew plenty of boys who did. Like we spoke about it. Mm. It was openly discussed. Mm. And so that then did create an atmosphere of fear. Mm. Um, and and it, it struck me in that podcast that it it felt to me like you you have felt affected by that long afterwards yeah i i my anger panty is you know and as tony said in the podcast your anger seems very reasonable now mm. and there's two or three very vivid moments in primary school that i still think about and i still see some of the guys i remember there was a kid in our school and he had learning difficulties and he was beaten up because of it like i yeah. just 
this whole trigger on my behalf came when I was doing the Caravan of Love thing for the podcast where I was working with the kids in Mullingar and the schools and the teachers and I saw the love and care they had and I thought to myself my god the difference that's going to have for their life as they get older and that was you know it was beautiful to see it but it was really but start the caravan in love is what on the podcast I did this quite inclusive piece in, in Mullingar where I got all the schools and all the the, the special needs groups to sing caravan love oh, in yes. kind sorry, of the house martin the house, house martin yes, yeah. yes every woman every man join the caravan of love stand up stand up stand up everybody take a stand join the caravan of love stand up stand up stand up and i just remember i was editing the video with a couple of the guys and they were sending me the videos and the drone shots because we couldn't go into the schools obviously yes. and i just saw the care these kids had from their teachers and i just thought like that is going to have an immense positive impact in their life going forward and then i look at my generation and the generation before me which is what that spoken word piece in teen spirits about is that I just look at, you know, some of my mates who are completely emotionally stunted. How could we be anything else when most of us are beaten? And like when you're beaten like that, you, you, you start having emotional deprivation. You start and God forbid if you had other shit going on at home yeah. where I didn't have that. I had this amazing household. I felt safe there. So mm. that was it was at least escapism. But we have to address this stuff. Mm. This stuff is as shameful as it gets. We were, as once again, and not to bring it up, like we've women and children put in prisons. Yeah. Women who had postnatal depression were put into institutions. Yeah. We had schools beating the shit out of kids. And we still have somebody who believes that the institutions that did this should hold even a shred of moral authority over this country. Yeah. And it's disgusting. And if we don't keep calling this out and we don't actually do something about it, it's shameful. Yeah. And that isn't overselling it. And it's, I have, I keep saying this, Panty, I have no problem with faith. If faith gives you comfort, brilliant. Hold on to that because comfort's amazing. I'm very spiritual. I'm not religious. I, my Catholicism was long bad out of me, but I have no problem with religion. It's the institutions I have the problem with. It's yeah. the abuse of power I have the problem with. Well, I mean, you know, my attitude is I have absolutely no problem with someone's personal belief and go for it, whatever you want. Um, but I do have a problem with organized religion because in, in, in my you know, humble opinion, once people start to organize, they necessarily um, have to start thinking of us and them. Mm -hmm. We're organized together, so we're one thing. And then there's this, you know, almost inevitable then effort to impose that on the people well, around. Freud yeah. speaks about, Freud speaks about this, the illusion of religion and why the human psychology and brain is so magnetized by religion and why it's so important. And it is exactly that. It's tribal. It's feeling yeah. part of something. And it's also driven by fear. And if you look at Catholicism, for example, it's not just driven by fear, it's driven by hypocrisy. And people are so terrified that if, if they're not part of it, they're against it. And in Ireland, we went from colonialism straight into Catholicism. When did we ever own our own values? And the difference is now in the last couple of decades, Ireland is now starting to realize what we do stand for. Yeah. And we're starting to understand not just our individual values, but our collective values as a state mm -hmm. and what we should stand for. And we can see it. We can see these massive movements in, in, in social movements. And that is the Ireland I want to be part of. Well, I have very strong religious faith in Dolly Parton. Um, I worship Dolly Parton. I live my life by her songbook. Um, it's an excellent religion and I encourage you all, all to join it. Um, 
But uh, <laughs> you, as a youth, you were a huge Kurt Cobain fan. Was. And then, you know, he died when you were a teenager. And, and like all teenagers, when their idols die, it's a blow and a big thing. And... And I know that about you, of course, because I saw the spoken word piece you did for the St. Patrick's Day Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to do it for us now. But tell us about it first. Yeah. And by the way, Dolly Parton is also my God. And, <laughs> and Dolly Parton. The funny thing about Dolly Parton is when you break all the, the love and just feel good, she's an unbelievable musician. Oh, my God. Have you ever seen her play? Like anything. Just give it to me. Pianos, banjos, band. Like it's just and not just like. I'll and the songs, oh my God, the songwriting uh, is She wrote uh, I Will Always Love You and Jolene in the, same, the same day. day. Yes, yeah. That's one of the most, one, has to be one of the most lucrative days in, <laughs> in, in publishing history. But yeah, Teen Spirit is about, I was asked by St. Patrick's Festival, which was amazing this year, and they did so much incredible work in difficult circumstances. And I it came because I, Kurt Cobain is actually 27 years gone this year. He died at 27 years of age. It really stayed with me. But that moment he died... <clears throat> I remember it. Like, I actually still get emotional thinking about it because, like, I learned how to play guitar with Nirvana. I stayed in my room day and night because they're also they were so easy to play. <laughs> I couldn't figure out Metallica, so I, I, I went Nirvana. And it was just, it just connected with me. I, I was in a difficult place anyway, but whatever Nirvana did, there was something special about it for me. And when he died... There was a picture the day he died on the front of the paper, or one of the papers, and it was him. And it was obviously a press shot that he had taken a few years ago with a shotgun. Mm. And I, I just, I never really heard the word suicide. You know, if yeah. you did, you'd really just mute and you wouldn't say it. And I asked the teacher and I, I like, I just remember the whole class going, what, what happened? Like, what happened? Where is he gone? Mm. And the teacher slammed the, the desk and called him a coward. And just, just don't, I just remember that that stayed with me forever. And <clears throat> the piece was me going back to what I should have been told that day. What did I need to hear from a teacher when my hero died? And I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know how to process it. I didn't know how to communicate about it in the midst of my own shit show. And I kind of went back and I wrote the piece. Imagine, imagine this was said to you. And it was me saying it to me as an adult. And I mm. hate sometimes because that sometimes because that sounds like one of those shitty little, you know, those, what would you say to your, your yeah, teenager? Yeah, yeah. I, I hate that stuff. It's not, it, it's not that. Yeah. It's actually me going back to my teenage self and saying, life is a shit show. It's not a straight line. Mm-hmm. It's not easy, but it's wonderful and it's amazing. And there's, if you can put value on where value should be put on your relationships and the people you love, that's how you get through this world. That's that's what makes it easier. And I think also when I look at throughout the pandemic, what really inspired it was the fact that I've seen and I'm, de- I'm delighted that we're st- we're starting to diminish the influence of celebrity. It doesn't matter. Like the powerful stories are are Mary down in Centre who served me my dad's paper every morning at 8 a.m. It's if you take the time to ask people. Their stories, they're incredible. Like I turned 40 the same day as Kim Kardashian. You know, she went to a private island and ha- with her mates. I had macaroni and cheese with my mum. But I felt I was more connected. And, was, you know, and, and that's to me is, is what this piece is about. It's can we, can we start valuing what actually matters and stop giving this re- these ridiculous pedestals to people who are just human beings? Yeah. But except in the case of musicians, you know... It, They'll never lose that celebrity thing because they mean so much and especially to teenagers. 
what I loved about the 80s, 90s, my, my heroes, I didn't know that much about them, like the princes. And I loved that. I just think it's, every, it's so the accessible now. Is, yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. like, you know, everything. What I do love about in my life, because I'm obsessed with musicians, it's the mystery of them I love. I love yeah. that mystery. And I think we should keep that. It's really, really important. Yeah. I just think it's this over-worship of valueless things that yeah. don't mean enough. And I, I think, I, I sound like an old man now saying that, but <laughs> I did a, another podcast on Christmas Eve called The World Tour of Mullingar, where we just went to all the nursing homes and played gigs for them. Yeah. And I interviewed them all at the window and every one of them said the same thing. I was like, simple question, what matters? Family, family, yeah. family, yeah. 95 years of age, family, family, family. I'm mm. like, please, please try and notice that your relationships and family can be hard so, as well. Uh, but your relationships are the beating heart of your emotional well-being. So, Keen, and now with Teen Spirit. I was 14 years old. I never really heard that word before. My hero's demise, the 8th of April, 1994. The class numbed days in a haze of a suffocating silence. And when I look back, I wonder did Ireland ever have a chance to take a breath? And I'm not sure where my sense of bravery came from that day as I asked a brother, why? Why? A cocktail of confusion, fever and fear disorientated my better judgement, I suppose. Slam! His fist almost breaks the desk in two. A coward, he screamed. A voice that was all too familiar with rage and too familiar with pain too. Censored by history, we were forced to inhibit. I watched as this man broke our teen spirit. And that was my mental health education. And you know, it's funny. The thing I needed to learn the most was a shadow, a ghost hiding in the darkness, just a butt of a joke. Your ma's up in St. Norman's, your dad's a mad joke. And I thought I was possessed by the devil. A viable option in the 90s in these lands. My mother's encyclopedia of health. Paradise lost in these hands. Asthma. Page 42, that's it, that's what's wrong with me. But the doctor said the tests were clear as just puberty. So a veil and mask disguise reality and camouflage disease in this body of an athlete. Then two weeks in June, those two weeks in June, I'm still haunted by the absence of Yates, cold sweat wake-ups in Oxbow Lakes, a Shakespeare tragedy wrapped up in a points race, but at least we knew it was happening. Surely there's a better way. And if I met myself back then, I often think, what would I say? Probably the words I'm going to say right now, today. And you know something? It's never too late. Cracks exist within us all, imperfectly designed and fallible, but there's a shared humanity in that, something that connects us all, and connections where the heart, mind and soul meet. You are not fighting on your own, so don't admit defeat or avoid things that make you uncomfortable. The bite is never worse than the bark, and you know what? Sometimes we see more in the dark, for we're not blinded by the glow of our ego. What doesn't serve you, just let it go. 
Embrace the rawness of wild youth. Listen to your gut, it knows the truth, and in a world where fiction soul is fact, let it be the compass that guides you, because you will get lost. We all get lost. And when you do, let your values find you, for what you stand for will always stand beside you. Don't value the valueless, empower the powerless, don't judge those with less, for equality is not just a word, it's a mindset, a principle of our proclamation that we sometimes forget. And not everyone's intention is to hurt you. Look past your behaviours and words, maybe they were hurt too. And not everyone's intention is to offend you, allow them space to grow. We all learn at our own pace, even if that sometimes frustrates you. And righteous anger is a gift. It can drive change and unite without a stone or a fist, but misguided anger is a toxic energy designed to distract us from the real enemy. And life doesn't always have to be binary. Divide and conquer reckless rivalry. Find a place where you can debate your differences respectfully. And when it comes to love, you will put up defences. The collateral damage of suffering has its consequences, but drop your guard, disarm, call a ceasefire on this war that in truth only causes harm. But the peace starts with you, and that journey is tough. Narcissism when you think you're too much, and compassion's when you think you are enough. And you are enough, just as you are. Say that yourself every single day, put it in your repertoire, and ask yourself, what are the attitudes of a good friend? And more importantly, how can I direct those attitudes within? For carrying shame will make you weary, and more often than not, it's not your way to carry. A dark past doesn't have to shadow a future. Mistakes gone before can be our best teacher, but we need to learn. Honour that legacy so we never return. And a power exists within us all. Use your voice, make that call and nearly 27 years on from that fateful day, 27 years gone at just 27 years of age I can still feel that pain, but I wonder what's changed. I see a generation now who can finally destroy the stigma that did its very best to destroy my generation and more. Let's not pass on that baton anymore. From grandfather to father and those that came before and it's not like you owe us a lot you're inheriting a world that's wounded and fraught but it's time to heal that now the snowflake generation just a label used by a damaged and broken nation but piece by piece each fragment will treasure create a whole and piece them together a paradigm shift a new evolution no longer dismissed a moral revolution be the change you want to see see the change you want to be and in this republic in this democracy we're no longer censored by history. It's time to exhibit a new Ireland now, led by your teen spirit. God, I I, I love these really intense performances when it's just uh, you're like an audience of one. I <laughs> know. <laughs> But I have to say, I do love your, what I now think of as your mindfulness voice. And um, you've been going to bed with myself and me fella now for the last week. Oh, I, yeah. Your wind up and wind down things. Yeah. All. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I think it was like, I've been studying mindfulness for years and I kind of went into the, I think the big, the bogger accent kind of suits it. Yeah. It's, it's inoffensive and flat. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think it was the wake up wind downs. This is funny because like the Americans are are enjoying it a lot. But I think in America, there's a bit of a nonsense approach to mindfulness, too. We call it Mac mindfulness, where it's like it's it's all this pious, slightly pious. Yum. It's like for me, mindfulness isn't that at all. It's it, it's it, mindfulness is quite battlefieldy and dirty. And it, Thich Nhat, who kind of is for me the the real forefather of it. It was born He's on a, a battlefield. Monk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it was born on a battlefield as peace activists and how they could do that type of work while being exposed to such difficulty. And I think we've created a, a kind of mindfulness for the Western world that's digestible and accessible. And a sort of mindfulness light or something. Mac mindfulness is yeah. often referred to. 
It's on which? Mac Mindfulness. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. yeah. And I, I mean, it's grand and if it relaxes you, but there's so much, so much more to mindfulness if you can open to it that's not meditation. And it's, it's insight into how you're behaving and how you interact and how you communicate and all that kind of stuff. And it's something I'm deeply passionate about teaching, but not in its kind of subscribing, commodified way. But like, you know, so I, I'm... And you really know almost nothing about it. So to me, I thought mindfulness was centering yourself and being aware of you know, being calm and being present in the moment or whatever. Um, but sort of that was it. I mean, what what you're describing there to me as a total layman sounds more like what I think of as therapy. So what, what, what's the it kind is. of difference? So for me, mindfulness, what it's very good for is to highlight the cracks and we all have cracks as Leonard Cohen says there's a crack in everything that's how the light gets yeah. in we all have cracks and often we ignore and dismiss them or pretend they don't exist and mindfulness for me in my own journey allowed me to really see them and what we also have done within therapeutic processes is we've created a world in mental health especially where we try to dismiss the traumas and pretend and act like they didn't happen but they did happen and you can't dismiss them, but you can change your relationship with them mm. and you can you don't have to be dictated by them. And I think that's what mindfulness started to teach me. But also it is about relaxation. It is the present moment is a very relaxing place. The modern world is the kryptonite to present moment. We are dragged left, right and centre constantly. And my definition of mindfulness is jump into an Irish lake uh, in the middle of winter and in the minute that wind, that water cuts the arse off you are you thinking about yesterday or what you have to do tomorrow <laughs> that's mindfulness it's just present moment focus uh, but, yeah but you know because my instinctual reaction is to say you know right now I don't want to be in the present yeah yeah but the mindful presence is is, is it's smaller in a sense it's yeah. where you are specifically well if you look at anxiety or anxiety disorder or anxiety generally where it's overwhelming what happens is your world becomes very small and it comes in on you and it feels very intense and what i do with that something is make your world big what we've created i think in the wellness industry especially is this bright sidey nonsense and this toxic positivity where we're just telling people that the only option is to be positive negativity is a crucial part of the human condition if you weren't negative you'd be dead it keeps you alive from an evolutionary psychology mm. point of view it's an important part of it the issue is is we don't hold our negativity to account so every negative thought you have is generally just a thought and sometimes we let them call all the shots whereas mindfulness kind of helps you go hold on a second here now this is the way I'm thinking. No wonder I'm anxious. No wonder I'm a bit low. No wonder my mood is kind of, in, there's yeah. instability with my mood. And what good therapy does and good psychology is address it and help you address mm. it. But how can you address something when you don't know it exists? Yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, in the pandemic and all, um, I, I guess people naturally develop their own ways of whatever. And one of my things is from my living room window, I can see the spire. Okay. And... Um, and it, that actually annoys me. What, you know, the spire was originally meant to be twice the height it is. But, you know, the NIMBYs and the complainers had a, you know, made sure it was only half the height. And I think that was a horrible mistake because if it was twice the height, nearly the whole city could see it. Mm -hmm. And it's an you know, elegant little thing that, you know, that's not going to destroy anyone's view. But when I'm feeling a little that things are a little crazy, I look up at the spire and I picture the bottom of the spire and I, and I can sort of then 
expand from that and see exactly where I am on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Like I'm very aware of where I am and that mm-hmm. usually calms me, to, you know, sort of sets me straight again. Like the spire is my little thing. But in the pandemic, now I am the kind of personality I have never, you know, had any issues around anxiety or depression or any of the things that lots of my friends and family have. I am not that person person, and I never was. And so the pandemic, we're now in our 13th month of lockdown. Um, and it's been 13 months where everything that made up my daily life is gone. Mm-hmm. I work in entertainment and hospitality. <laughs> They're both gone. Um, and so I have been sitting inside my apartment looking at the spire for 13 months. Mm-hmm. And and so for the very first time in my life, I and, and, and I didn't recognize it at first. And if it had been in somebody else, I would recognize it immediately. But I didn't recognize myself for a while until I realized I've been in bed for days. Mm-hmm. And I have, for the first time in my life, had to deal with bouts of depression mm-hmm. in the last few months. The first six months, I was very productive and gung-ho and I was going to get on and do things. And so this is like a very you know, new experience for me. And so in a way, I guess I've become, suddenly become much more conscious of it and, and trying not to fall into it mm-hmm. or whatever. And of course, you know, a number of people have said to me, you know, maybe you should talk to somebody or whatever. But my reaction to that was, I, yes, I have had, I'm, have had bouts of depression. But to me, it's a perfectly natural response to this insane mm-hmm. situation that I've been thrown into. I don't feel like that it's a, it's a, it's a wrong reaction. Um, it, it seems like, you know, in a way, a good reaction. Because mm-hmm. at least I didn't go out and shoot up a post office or something, you know. Uh, like, who wouldn't? Yes. You know, I've had these bad friends. So, so while I'm aware of it and all of that, I'm not beating myself up over it. Mm-hmm. As, as somebody who's in, all about mindfulness and all that, are you thinking, oh, she's insane, she needs to talk to somebody because... Or am I right to say... It's a totally natural reaction. And and for the moment, I'm letting it happen. I couldn't, could not agree with you more. Oh, thank God. (laughs) And I have said this for the last six or seven months. If you are going out to the back and screaming at birds and having these meltdowns and getting these moments of apathy and the apathy trap and finding yourself in bed, eating crap for good, you should be. It's a very rational response to a pandemic and to this absolute shit show that me and you find ourselves in in terms of our industry. Mm. I look at my peers and colleagues who not just lost their their financial well-being, but their sense of purpose. Yeah. All these things that are at the foundation and beating heart of how we feel about ourselves. I have all the coping mechanisms of the world. I've been in therapy for years. I'm immensely psychologically flexible. I have had really, really difficult times through this pandemic. Mm. I've had moments where I felt like vomiting. I've had moments where I, I just felt I, I felt completely imploding, like and, and not being able to rationally think. And I also, like you, had the insight to understand that this is a perfectly normal response to this. And anyone listening to this who's getting those moments, it is normal. Your brain is only doing its job. This mm. is not 
this is as tough as it gets. I keep saying to people, this is like our World War Two. The last time the whole world was brought to its knees was a war. Mm. And imagine, I always think, imagine Twitter existed during World War Two. how much shitter it would have been. We have to deal with all this other stuff. And my good mate, Dr. Michael Keeney, neuroscientist, said we have an old brain for a new world. We're not built for this. And not, never mind the pandemic, strip all the other stuff mm. back. The constant toxicity that we're exposed to, the anger, the frustration, which has only been made worse because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. We're all human fucking beings. We feel it all. And we need to stop pretending that we're this kind of... And there's people who say to me, oh, well, I'm actually all right. Great. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I'm great. I'm delighted for you. But there's people who have lost their jobs, who have lost their sense of purpose, who have felt isolated and alone. I've been lucky enough to be with my parents and I've never connected with them more and that's been the saving grace but it still hasn't meant I haven't had these huge moments and I haven't had a panic attack in years. Like I haven't, I used used to experience them two or three a day. I was so good at them. I could Mm -hmm. have them and have a conversation with you while Mm -hmm. ripping the skin off my hand in my pocket. Yeah. But I've come close again. I've, I've, I've felt myself drifting back to that place where I was losing control. But, you, but you've also been so productive and creative during the pandemic. And I think, I, you know, in, in the first few months I was too, then I've lost all of that. But I haven't been able to write anything or just concentrate on any of that kind of stuff. Um, but you have. But, I, but the thing about it is, it's, it's, I have and I haven't, Panty. Like I've been, there's many other areas from, from a kind of, front-facing thing like it does look but what the podcast I'm doing like even the wake up wind downs mm. that's part of my therapeutic process okay. I'm reading all the time and I'm only reflecting on what I'm reading and it's helping me a lot putting that out it also helps me a lot if I'm being honest knowing that it might be helping other people that's the helper's high it's it's it is something but there has been weeks where there's nothing I mean nothing mm. and what I have learned is the discipline to walk away when it's not there and not to feel guilty about it what I'm trying to say to you is I'm not dealing with this well. Mm. I'm not like, I'm just not. And I, I, that's not good for my brand because Obrezi, you're a mindfulness girl. You should be fucking figuring this out. I'm not because I'm human. Mm. It's hard. And I miss gigging. I miss the release of being on tour. I miss, I miss normality. I miss, I really, really miss social connection. I miss it more than anything. We're not, we're hardwired for it. But on the other side of things, I've reconnected with things that I I, I, I didn't care about, like nature. I've become yeah. submerged in nature. It's part of me. And I know it's difficult when you live in the city. And that spire thing is you're grounding yourself. Yeah. You're grounding and it's yeah, re- it, it is, feels yeah. good. Uh, but I really, I really, I, I saw you when you're on the, you know, six o'clock show and, and it, I could see it in you. I could see it was just, it. it's, it's normal. And it's, mm. I don't think people who also understand if you go to a professional athlete, and overnight the career ends because of an injury, say, for example. Mm. It is, it's known for being one of the most difficult things yeah. any person can go through because everything you, your identity is wrapped around is gone overnight. And that's what happened to us. Yes. I'm 52 and on my whole adult life, I have felt like I, I know what I'm for. Mm-hmm. You know, what I'm for, you know, is this, the performing and the, uh, you know, all of that stuff. And... And when all that is suddenly taken away from you and you can't do it anymore, you know, I find myself in there, well, what am I actually for mm. if I'm not for that? Mm. And, you know, at the moment, I'm not for that. Mm. Um, so it, it, it's a sort of an existential crisis. But you also, you mentioned the war thing, and that's very interesting to me because I felt for, a lo- you know, for the first three quarters of this thing um, that because we weren't at war 
Um, we weren't having our food rationed like our parents' generation or our grandparents. We weren't, you know, being sent to fight in trenches and, and have legs blown off and stuff. That we almost took it lightly in a sense because, um, you know, I'm sitting at home watching Netflix. You know, it's not any that bad. And so there was this kind of, first of all, I think I and, every, and other people were, were, were treating it lightly because it seemed on the surface to be fairly light. And, and secondly, then there was also this pressure, you know, this we're all, you know, army spirit, you know, like wartime spirit the, to almost you weren't really allowed complain. So there's this pressure on you to be this constantly sort of positive and, you know, we're going to get through this, you know, whatever, you know, pr- productive, positive. Um, and I found that wearing because I wanted to complain about it. Um, but I will say that then, you know, the last few months then, I certainly, this actually is like being in a war. Like it's taking a much bigger toll than the idea of, oh, just having to stay home and watch Netflix sounds. Because it is this existential crisis about what am I actually fucking for mm. now? Um, but it's also one crack of relief in that is, and millions of people have said this, but I feel it so keenly. When people say to me now, how are you? I feel like I actually can say you know, I've been struggling. Mm-hmm. And I think if I, 18 months ago, if somebody said, hey, how are you? And I came out with that, it would have been incredibly awkward and weird. But now people actually do want to know how you are. And I feel like I can say, well, actually, I've been in bed for the last three days. Mm-hmm. You know, I've just got up this morning because I needed toilet paper. But you know, this is the thing about, you know, people will say rightly, people went, went through World War II. And like I remember speaking to my you know, many people about how how horrific it was and it was, you know, but perspective doesn't work that way in psychology. When you take basic needs away from an individual like social connection, it, it has effect. Mm. It, it has an impact. And we are obviously much safer now. We live in a much safer world. We can go and watch Netflix and we can go and all those things. This isn't complaining. And we have to change that narrative. If somebody questions decisions, it doesn't mean they're anti-lockdown. It means they're citizens of a democracy and that's how democracies work. It doesn't mean they're being negative. And one of the Mm. biggest anxieties that are being driven with people at the moment, it doesn't feel like we're in safe hands because decisions Mm. are being made and you're kind of look, nobody expects our governments to make perfect decisions in this. It's a shit show. We don't expect them to get it right, but we expect them to tell us when they don't and not spin it. Mm. Taking that stuff away from individuals for 13 months it does have impact. And certain people, just because they're getting through it and they're grand, doesn't mean they're any stronger than anybody else. That's not mm. how it is. Like I look at you and I look at my industry and I suppose my industry, I look more at my friends who this is their job. I've never seen anything hit anybody like what's happened. Mm. And my partner's a psychologist. I've worked in psychology for years. I work around psychologists. They're all saying the same thing. I've never seen anything like this and it doesn't mean we're all broken it means we're fucking human yeah and that's the difference and you talk about the complaining thing the other thing that we have now in society is there's understandably a huge level of anger and frustration and people are i said that in teen spirit we're directing it at the wrong people don't get angry with the wrong people what this problem in ireland is people who do you know bad things never are held accountable it's not fair and then we have these radio ads going you know just talk some people need more than that panty some mm. people need real real support and i'm really passionate about trying to find ways of making that support accessible for people because it mm. works it brought me through my darkest hours and i know it can help others 
this is so this is tough. This mm. is really tough. And my biggest advice when people ask me, Brezzy, give me your top three tips for the pandemic. My first tip is let it be tough. Mm. Let it be tough. You know, don't push it away or think that you're something wrong with you or you're weak because you aren't you aren't able to deal with it. You're not. This is tough. Please, please, please don't see this as a wasted 13 months. It feels like it. Mm. But we've built a lived experience that you will not read in a book or a self-help book or some course that someone tries to sell you how to be stronger mentally. What we have gone through in 13 months, those moments where you feel like you couldn't get out of bed, you did get out of bed and you did face the world. That stuff will stand to you. That mm -hmm. stuff will build that resilience. And when another shit show comes our way, which it will, because that's life, you're going to feel like you can deal with it better. Mm. And that to me is lived experience and there ain't nothing, nothing mm. that can, can offer you that. And a pandemic is a pretty good training ground mm. for it. Um, there's a million things I wanted to talk to you about, but of course we can't stay here all day. Um, but I do want to encourage everybody to go and, and who, in case they haven't already, anybody out there who hasn't checked out your podcast and everything, um, that they absolutely should. Um, and also, just you, you do so many things like you're, you know, the, sending ukuleles to people you know who are cocooning um, you're doing this thing where you're training people kind of through a mindfulness to run the marathon and all I mean there's a lot but, but there's one thing that I personally just have to ask you because when I read it I had a visceral reaction to it and that is the idea that I don't know what age you were maybe in your teens you tried to break your own or you did break mm. your own arm yeah you know, I, I, I remember when I, I if I speak, uh, you know, when I speak with parents or stuff, I'm often told not to talk about this stuff because it'll make young people do it. And I always say that's the attitude that has us in this position. Yeah. Knowledge and understanding this stuff and something like self-harm, it's crucially, crucially important. But uh, to break your own arm is fucking dark, if you mm -hmm. don't mind me saying. It was. And that was after, you know, days of no sleeping, of chronic panic attacks, of... You know, I was a very, very self-sabotaging player as well. I used to always openly try to get injured when I played. And, and my self-harm started with kind of quite, quite small stuff. And I, I remember very vividly that day. And I remember not having a shred of sanity. I didn't feel, I just felt, I just felt like I had nothing in my head that was making sense. And I lay on the I lay on my bedroom floor and it was like the base of the bed <clears throat> and I just I just it was just lost I was lost mm -hmm. and I remember doing it and this is the really weird part about it I fell asleep after Fuck. you know and it felt like and this is why I've, I've really self-harm to me is something we need to understand it is slightly addictive uh, when you're in that space, you're just looking for glimpses of normality. And that's why addiction and mental health is so intrinsically linked. Yet in this country, we still have a diagnosis issue, dual diagnosis where people with addictions and mental health issues can't be treated at the same time. You know, this is that's dark to me. Mm. That's dark stuff. And uh, nobody. Have you ever met anybody addicted to anything who wants to be addicted to something? <laughs> nobody wants to be. It's a reaction mm. to repress pain. And who makes us repress pain? Society. And I look back to that self-harm. And as a teenager, I couldn't go drinking. I couldn't take drugs. There was no other. This became an addictive action. And I just, I just never forget it. And I remember waking up the next day and my arm was black. And I knew what a bone, bone, I know what it felt like. And I know people listening to this are going, that's tough and it's upsetting. But ignoring mental health issues is upsetting. Mm. It isn't, it isn't pretty. Yep. Uh, which makes me, why I'm so passionate about 
is consistently opening up this conversation, especially for young people. I just, I don't have as much fear for young people anymore because at least they now have the language to describe yeah. what they're dealing with. I didn't. I mean, uh, you know, at the moment, there's a big conversation around, you know, males um, and how they interact with the world and all. Um, and, you know, male suicide in Ireland is very high. And do you think that some of the pressure on you then was around this, you know, masculinity stuff. I mean, because you were the alpha male professional athlete, all the sports, you know, you're a big handsome guy. You know, on the surface, you had had everything that a boy is meant to have. And yet the internal thing was so very different. Mm. Um, like, do you think that was tied up in this sort of idea of masculinity or, you know having to achieve and and not having to show weakness. Well, I suppose it's important to point out that the biggest influences on my life were my sisters and my mother or my dad was spent a lot of my life overseas. My brother left uh, to go to Glasgow and I was very, very young. So I was constantly around four women growing up and four beautiful, incredible women. But, but the society around you still has an expectation. Yeah, I absolutely did. But the, the point being, my grounding at home was very much, I suppose it wasn't that kind of masculinity. I don't even, I don't even know how to phrase that word. For me, what happened throughout my teenage years was my biggest fear was people finding out that there was something not right. So mm. what was the best way to do that? Succeed. Mm. do things like rugby and, and like, I mean, I actually, I never really liked rugby, to be honest. I was a Gaelic footballer. I much preferred Gaelic football. It was just, it was simpler. I played professional rugby for three years. I didn't know the rules. I literally <laughs> was just a big angry man. And everything I, I was doing was trying to keep my secret more secret. And with music was the only thing that didn't do that. Music was, I felt a safer place for me. I loved, I grew, I grew up, my mum's a music teacher. My brother's a music producer. I always say sport is what I did. Music is who I am. Mm. And I do feel that you talk about conversations around masculinity. We need to find a far better way to do this. This isn't working. And we know that I'm not just talking suicide figures. I'm just talking the general inability for men to even want to have these conversations and to close them off. And to and I don't feel angry at men for that. We've been, been socialized and conditioned to do that for so long. And that mentality i think it is changing i look now and men are having these conversations especially younger men and it's it's really really important but there's so many other conversations that need to be had as well that are all kind of wrapped up and entangled in this mess but for me personally as my journey with masculinity was when i actually became most comfortable with my own skin was when i realized that i could be vulnerable that became very important to me that vulnerability isn't a weakness. Mm. I realized I am not invincible. I remember after I wrote the book, I went a couple of a year, year and a half after I was in Lanzarote and I was in this horrible queue because there's no air conditioning in that bloody airport. And we were standing in the queue and there was a, there was an elderly couple, I'd say they were touching 80 in front of me and it was just a husband and wife. And I was standing there with uh, my mate Liam and the father turned, or the, the man turned around and he put his hand on my shoulder and started to cry. And then the wife started to cry. <clears throat> and I didn't, I was like, What's, what are they crying about? And he just, he finally came through and he, he, he goes, I read your book. And after 
40 years of living with this, I told my wife, 40 years that I, I've, I, I've struggled with depression. My grandfather struggled with it and his wife. And he said, since then, it's like we're married again. And I know it's felt to myself, how many times is that happening? Mm. How many men can we get through to, to have those conversations? How can we do this better? Um, and when you look at somebody who's 80 years of age, who now is probably going to live for the first time, mm. you know, actually live their life and be vulnerable and be human. Um, that to me is why I do what I do. Mm. That's pretty in, in, intense thing. Um, yeah, people are amazing. Um, you're going to do another thing for us. Um, yes. Talk to me about Tom Waits. If every artist in the world, I was only ever, ever allowed to listen to one ever again or meet one, it's him. I am weirdly obsessed with them. I, I, everything about him, he to me is everything I, I adore about music. And his album Closing Time, which is his first record, uh, which actually didn't do that well when he put it out initially, is so important to me that it's hard to describe. I, I And I, when I lived in London, I went through quite a serious bout of insomnia. And there's a lot of people I know who've, who've dealt with it, and especially at the moment. It's it's, ho it's horrible. Mm. It's really horrible. And y you know, y the more you think about it, the harder it becomes. And on top of that, everything, my hair fell out. And it was just a really difficult time in London. Um, and I was taking medication and it wasn't working. And only thing that worked for me was to listen to that album and pretend I was in a smoky bar in New York. And it, it like you talk about the spire, it brought me away there. Mm. And I just had this picture of sitting like, remember Cheers, the, 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 the sitcom and I'm yeah. sitting there with a whiskey and there's this lad on the piano playing these beautiful songs. And I was there and I was listening to them and I closed my eyes and I'd listen to the album. And for some reason, every time it got to Grapefruit Moon, which is like the 10th song on the record, and I got to the middle eight, I was gone, asleep. And I remember the first night falling asleep going, wow. And then I, I, I listened to that album every night and pretend I was in that bar in New York every night. And I got through it and I started sleeping again. I started realizing that music therapy and listening to music, not in the way that we've been trained to listen to it now, which is just so dismissive of it. Mm. If you can, you talk about mindfulness, if you can mindfully listen to music, it can change your life. The next time you listen to your favorite song or favorite artist, pretend you're in that bloody room, mm. listen to them behind the mic. And if you're having a difficult time, it can bring you there. And that is why music can be so powerful. And that's why this album and this, this, this spoken word piece closing time is so important to me. Okay, so um, let's hear it. It's another spoken word piece, by the way. Yes, I so, don't feel uh, like singing today. Yeah, but also <laughs> like it's interesting to me because I, I, I I read that you're going to bring out an album of spoken word. Mm. It's interesting to me how spoken word has had a renaissance. It's because I, I, I certain things work well in a song and certain don't. Like you, like you look at Teen Spirit, like that's a lot of words, a lot of syllables. If you try to put that into a song, it's going to sound awful yeah. and clunky. Um, and singing melody is also about phrasing and it's, 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 it's a slightly different thing. And I think the spoken word has kind of had a renaissance yeah. because there's so many social issues now and there's so much fight for those social issues and spoken word is an amazing way yeah. to communicate those things. My spoken word isn't so much around social issues as it's more about the actual human mm -hmm. condition and uh, using my own experiences to hopefully support other people. But I think the spoken word piece is a fantastic way. There's so much intention in it and yeah. uh, there's so much pressure and jeopardy and I love it. And yeah, I love doing it. I love it.
Well, let's um, hear it. And the lovely Kean is going to come in and play piano for you again. Melody always had ways of saying things that words simply couldn't. Of bringing you to places that your mind just wouldn't. A smoky bar in New York City. A whiskey haze drowns out your pity as Tom Waits plays a batter piano and hopes that he doesn't fall in love with you. For five nights now I've stared at this ceiling. A London love story in walls with no feeling. And if I could sleep, at least I could dream of somewhere else. A place where fear didn't choke and how love felt. But while wide awake, my consciousness was aware. Although I'm here, I can't stay there. And as your fingers fall upon the keys, each note brings me closer to ease. And though 3,500 miles away, I'm in that room now, and here I must stay. For I feel safe, drowning in your vulnerabilities, as you sing on that stage. Old 55, I hope that I don't fall in love with you. Virginia Avenue and old shoes. A midnight lullaby, I'm not quite asleep yet. Martha and Rosie as you pause for a cigarette. A new request, you ask? An ice cream man, that'd be class. And on this other side of fear, a little trip to heaven, you bring me right there. Just a few more songs, I swear. And with the opening chords of Grapefruit Moon, shine like a light in the corner of this room. And in light there's hope, and in hope there's light. One star shining in the darkest of nights. And while the cello makes its way to the middle eight, Closing time, folks, it's getting late. My eyes are heavy. I feel this weight. Lift. Sleep. Sleep. Twelve songs that saved my life. Forty-six minutes, a piano and a mic. The voice of a devil, but an angel disguised. Sometimes your savior comes in the solace of words. And sometimes your saviour comes in the solace of silence. And sometimes you're saved by the strength of others. And you find a sanctuary in the arms of your mother. I was saved by the craft of an artist. Twelve songs that saved my life. By the melody and words of the broken hearted. Twelve songs that saved my life. From the very last note to that first note that started. Twelve songs that saved my life that night. Lovely. Beautiful. Thank you, Kean Boyle, and you're a beautiful piano player as well. Um, that was beautiful. Thank you. Um, but obviously, just, you know, before, I don't want to leave people with the impression um, of, you know, the wrong impression of where you are in your life. Because you're in a very sort of settled, good space now, generally, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you are you have a good woman, uh, Louise, from the band, uh, the bass player. And, uh, you know, you've been down in, back in Mullingar during lockdown, but, you know, you're in the bosom of your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I mean, yes. Yeah, so, like, what, who is who is Nile Breslin now? I'm in great space. I but I'm getting those inevitable wobbles, like you are, like those normal human wobbles that we should yeah. be getting in a pandemic. But generally, I feel very 
kind of settle in in myself and my career and what I'm doing. And I, I, you know, I think at the end of the day, I will always have general anxiety disorder. Yeah. It's, it's it's going nowhere, but I don't need it to go anywhere. And yeah. I, I've, I've got all the arsenal in my mm-hmm. arse pocket to deal with it. And in fact, in, in many cases, it's an amazing driving force for me. It helps yeah. me. And I get a lot of comfort. I really do. And solace of trying to help other people find that space too. Mm. And that, that makes me happy. And I enjoy it. And and have you been enjoying being back in Mullingar? You went down there because I, I think during the lockdown, uh, you know, your parents are, aren't 21 anymore and whatever, giving a dig out. Or yeah, I, I, I was the only one in my family who could work remote, remotely. And I kind of said to, the, to all of them, I have four, I have four siblings. And I was like, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go down. Because at that point, time, we didn't know how serious this was going to get. Yeah. And I remember Leo's speech and I was like, Right, this I think this is worse than people are saying, and mm. I think this is going to go on longer. I said to my mum and dad, "I'm I'm down. I, whatever you need, I'll go to the shops. We need to really cut this risk and order risk. No one comes into the house. Yeah. My dad is, you know, they're both relatively healthy. My dad has had, you know, bypass operations and stuff. You don't want him getting it. And uh, that was just, just look after them. I think they're absolutely sick of me now at this point. They're like, well, I'm going to say has it been because you know, I, in many ways, I identify with your background growing up. I have five brothers and sisters. I'm from the edge of a market town in the country. Um, you know, my p- family are great. I get on great with them. All lovely. My parents are elderly at this stage, um, and I l- love them to death. But that doesn't necessarily mean I want to go and live with them for a year. Do you know, honestly, Auntie? Honestly, Mum said this to me the other day. We didn't fight once. Which is, which I don't know. I think we've really respect each other. I think mm. if there's something on our mind, we say it, you know, yeah. and we we open it up, and we do irritate each other. Of course, we do. I irritate them; they irritate me. I'd say my mum is absolutely, completely had enough of of her supermarket bill because I mean, I I'm literally eating them out of house and home, things like that. But it's been really special. It's been really mm. special, and I'm very privileged that I was in a position to do and it. And is Louise from Mullingar? No, from Navan. Okay. So, but but in in lockdown, she's uh, in. Where's she? Louise is a psychologist, so it's been she's been in Dublin, so it's been really hard. Like as a, you know, it's part of. But they, like, luckily enough, as a psychologist, most of them can do their online work. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's been testing. It's been tough, and it was for me to make that decision to go home. And I, I fingers crossed. I think my parents are getting the vaccine this week. Uh, and the relief that's going to have for me. And actually, I, I'm incredibly impressed with their resilience. They have just been incredible. Like, they've just taken it and gone with it and rocked with it. And I did struggle. I did struggle at the start with the language around cocooning. I felt it very dismissive. I felt it very, you go over there now and take care of yourself yeah. so we get on with things. And that's why I did the ukulele thing. Because I, I did feel that that, imagine being told you're, imagine knowing you're vulnerable, being told you're really vulnerable. Yeah. And you need to stay indoors. That must have been tough. So, yeah, I, I've enjoyed it. I've been able to do the podcast at home in my mum's spare room with two mattresses from the 1970s. That's another thing. Mum needs to buy some new mattresses. They're <laughs> rotten. Uh, duvet, you know, and my my little spare room that smells wet dog and... That's where well, I've been. Aren't you the one who should be buying new mattresses at the moment? Because have have you not just bought a house? I have terrifying where process. I, I Wicklow at and forty. At forty, I bought my first home, and it was a tough, tough process. I I worked my arse off to try and 
to get to it, get there, and then the you know the day I bought it or the week I bought it, Dave McWilliams tells everyone not to buy a house. But uh, I don't care. I need a home. I haven't yeah. had a home, and it's really unsettling not having a home. I want to live in a community. I was yeah. going to buy in Mullingar, but I kind of felt that I, I kind of I didn't want to buy in Dublin because I can't afford it, and. I just wanted to be somewhere where I could add something to the community mm. and not just live there. And I think that's why I, I, I chose there and I've always loved it, you know. So that's that's where I'm at. And Well, yeah. if it's any use to you, uh, the 40s were my favourite decade of my life. Mm. Um, 50s haven't started off so great. <laughs> We've oh. had a very... Yeah, either they got better all the way along. Um, so... Yeah, so I think you stop giving really a shit about stuff you used to give a shit about, and the stuff yeah, you, you used know, to give a shit about stress the shit yeah. out of you. You know who you are, yeah. and yeah. and and also just you know their life terms. It's just yeah, it was good for me. Yeah. Of course, I wasn't a rock star in my twenties, so yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so what's the future plans? Um, for me, it's very much the podcast is growing and growing and growing and I'm loving it and I'm 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 really I want to bring it to I think we're only scratching the surface with podcasting mm-hmm. I think it's especially in Ireland uh, I think I'm going to write more books it's a big thing for me I really 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 miss playing music yeah. I miss it so much it's a release that will never be will never be replaced so I want to get back playing I, I tell you one thing Panty when this does kick back off it's going to be one hell of a year and we're going <laughs> to yeah. we're going to connect together and have some crack I will I, I'm going to st- I'm going to stay out for days on end <laughs> yeah, like I like did you know back to the 20s yeah um, well thank you so much now that's been fun um much more fun than my usual routine these days, which is getting up, annoying me husband and looking for at the, the day. <laughs> yeah, and you know, talking to the wall. Um, and thank you uh, also uh, to Kean Boylan for the beautiful accompaniment. And um, yes, thank you, Niall Brezzi. My Brezzi. pleasure. Thank you. I like it's um, Lisa Hannigan. I like that music. Who is that? Lisa Hannigan. Oh yes, that's how I knew that was. Mm-hmm.